Can a liberal arts education really provide any value to those who are in prison? Join us and find out on today's episode of the Bending Bars podcast. Well, welcome to our Bending Bars podcast for today. It's a uh, a great pleasure to have our guest on today's show. Mr. Brent Oral is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where he works on job training, workforce development, and criminal justice reform. Specifically, his research focuses on expanding opportunity for all Americans through improved work readiness and job training and improving the performance of the criminal justice system through rehabilitation and prisoner reentry programs. Brent, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Bending Bars podcast. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. It's a real pleasure to be with you and um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. As are we, as are we. Brent, I wanted to start um, as a sort of a lead-in question, but I wanted to uh, tell our audience a bit more, too, about your your background before joining um, AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. You've worked in both the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government. You've got about 20 years of experience there, but also impressively enough is uh, you were nominated by President George W. Bush to lead the Employment and Training Administration of the U.S. Department of Labor, and you also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Administration for Children and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And I I guess as kind of a lead-in question, if you could share with us a little bit about just that incredible experience and then uh, your connection to the work you're now doing, especially on the criminal justice system side and education for sure. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, you know, there's an old saying in Washington that the longer the title is, uh, the less important the job is. You should never be too impressed with long titles in Washington, D.C. But uh, my jobs in the Bush administration, um, I spent about five years, four to five years of my eight years in the Bush administration, really focusing uh, most of my time, I would say, on programs that are targeted at helping individuals who are coming home from prison uh, to access um, uh, case management, job training, and employment. Um, This was a brand new, pardon me, a brand new initiative uh, under uh, President Bush that was announced in uh, his 2004 State of the Union address. And I think um, came as quite a shock to um, the assembled members of Congress, we just saw a presidential address two nights ago. Uh, uh, and uh, I'll never forget the looks on um, the faces of the Republican members of Congress when President Bush started talking about the importance of uh, prisoner reentry programs and helping people start a new life after they've come home. That's not, those aren't words that you uh, typically hear or in the prior to that typically heard much of from um, uh, Republican presidents or Republican members of Congress have traditionally been very tough on crime, kind of lock them up and throw away the key. So, um, yeah, so that that really shapes my uh, has shaped my interest uh, in um, criminal justice and prisoner reentry over the last 20 years. Makes a lot of sense. And of course, it kind of ties into an article you wrote. I think it came out last year. It was uh, published in USA Today. Yeah. And and what caught my interest, Brent, was um, 
the argument that you make in which you talk about the value of a liberal arts education as a sound investment, and certainly with your experience um, at, at the governmental level, but then in terms of watching watching folks, men and women, make that transition back into society, um, that's almost a little bit of a curveball, I, I would say, probably to most people, because they may not think, oh my gosh, what what value could the liberal arts provide? Shouldn't we just give them something practical, right? Something right. in the trades. And so I would love to kind of hear, you know, sort of your um, your sort of explanation on that only because it, it aligns perfectly with what you and I've discussed in terms of the content of our program. Right. So um, first of all, just, as, just to kind of frame this, I mean, I, I think that Americans are uh, very, very pragmatic um, when it comes to education generally. Um, this isn't just a problem of prisoner education. This is actually uh, an issue in education for just about everybody who um, who goes through our educational systems at both the secondary level and, and uh, uh, post-secondary level. You know, we put a very high premium as a society on being able to, being able to connect um, uh, specific jobs to the education that we're pursuing. Uh, jobs, uh, education is valued primarily in, uh, in the United States for what it does for us economically. Um, and that goes probably double or triple for people who have committed crimes or in prison. Nobody really uh, wants to invest um, in education that doesn't have some practical application um, for people in prison because we expect that when people are released from prison, we want them to go immediately back to work or, or immediately to work um, as a kind of, um, you know, a, a continuation of uh, their uh, rehabilitation uh, and to give them something productive to do to keep them out of trouble. And so there's this idea that we should focus on the most practical kinds of education uh, as it relates to people who are in prison. And, and honestly, I think there's some resistance to the idea that uh, when there are so many American families who feel like they can't afford a college education for their children, why should um, somebody who's committed a crime uh, then be eligible um, or, or have some sort of special support uh, to pursue uh, a college education while they're in prison. And those are not unreasonable questions uh, to be asking. Um, my uh, take on this is that uh, what winds people up in prison, um, what the, the sort of the pathway that leads them into uh, into criminal activity and and then into incarceration frequently has to do with um, a what what I talked about in the article as kind of an impaired theory of mind. Theory of mind is a psychological concept that um, <clears throat> uh, it, it, it's it's our ability to read the world and read other people as as having um, their own uh, sense of worth and dignity and, uh, and, uh, and, and a, a burden on us 
to respect those things in them. And I think that because people, many people in prison, certainly not all, but many people in prison come from pretty traumatized backgrounds that interfere with that, um, that there is a, a lack of human sympathy in some cases, empathy, some people call it, um, and that uh, uh, practical education um, doesn't really do much to help address that problem. So we're taking sort of traumatized, socially alienated people and we're putting them into prison where they are often re-traumatized by the experience, where they are um, dehumanized um, by their experience. And then we're, we're sort of shocked when they um, finish their sentences and get out. And then uh, so many of them wind up recommitting crimes and going back into prison. So the, the theory here is uh, that there's something deeper here than learning uh, a trade or a skill that needs to happen in order to get a successful reentry. Could not agree more. I think what you're introducing, Brent, is you know what we might term kind of a narrative shift, right? So many people think uh, much in the same way. Part of the narrative shift has to do with moving away from, you know, uh, sort of corporal or you know, punishment, crime and punishment and warehousing to rehabilitation and training and education. So too, I think on, on the educational side, um, you know, shifting from, or it may be complementing the view. I mean, the trades are great. Don't get me wrong. We, we, we want our folks to be, you know, well-trained and, and educated in, in a specific profession to do something, you know, physical or tangible, practical in, in, in the outside world. But but I think you're right. I think what you're offering is a corrective to uh, and what is a more complementary vision of what a robust educational experience should look like. And that's where the value of the liberal arts for sure plays such a such a major role. You also bring up and this is, I think, an interesting and I think a very key point is that the liberal arts could, in fact, solve a very practical problem. And that is just the functional illiteracy of so many of our incarcerated you know, men and women that a a more, you know, kind of praxis driven, um, you know what I mean? Kind of trade training program might look like. And I just think that's a crucial point too. So many of them come out with what's, they go in, I should say, maybe with a seventh or eighth grade equivalent education and needing so many basic remedial reading, writing and math skills too. So I think the liberal arts hits a major point there too. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, in, in today's economy, uh, my, the other half of my portfolio, aside from criminal justice reform, is workforce development. But in today's economy, sort of long-term professional success is really a three-legged stool. Uh, the first is literacy, sort of basic, you know, reading, writing, um, uh, critical thinking, math skills, you know, all of those things are essential. The second thing is kind of technological competence. You don't have to, everybody doesn't need to be a coder, right? You don't need to, to be a computer scientist, but everybody needs to know how to use technology in order to, um, to find a place in the economy. Uh, and then I think the third is uh, interpersonal skills. Um, uh, social emotional skills, non-cognitive skills that go by a whole bunch of different names. Um, but they're really talking about this capacity to interact with other human beings successfully. 
So uh, that's the three-legged stool. And, uh, you know, the, the traditional approach to prison education with a focus on the trades, which, as you say, are great, um, you know, really, um, you know, you can, you can make a good living um, as a plumber, as an electrician, as a woodworker, as, you know, you name it, all of those kinds of activities or, or uh, employment opportunities, you can do very well with those things. Um, but there's a couple problems with channeling everyone toward them, right? Um, you, uh, not, first of all, not everybody is skilled for that kind of work. Those are very demanding occupations. They require uh, a, a particular set of uh, um, uh, motor and and you know sort of a fine touch um, uh, with materials to be able to do them successfully. How many people are actually skilled for that? Um, how many people actually have an interest in doing that work? Um, and so we're trying to uh, put a bunch of square pegs into round holes, I think. And I, my, my, my exhortation is not that everybody needs to study the liberal arts. My exhortation is that different people need different kinds of educational opportunities in order to sort of latch on to them and be able to move forward. Um, something has to be intrinsically motivating and of interest uh, in order for people to stay with it. And so that that what I'm arguing for really is just diversity in educational opportunities. Yeah, I think you sum it up well. Uh, it's it's more towards the beginning of the article, but you say <laughs> we need to look to the humanities to prepare for the business of living and not just the business of earning a living. Mm -hmm. And I think that really just captures yeah. really you know, that sentiment quite well. And, and to be fair, I think I stole that from a, a very prominent liberal arts college, uh, one of our oldest and best uh, liberal arts college, St. Uh, John's College in Annapolis, oh, yeah. where they uh, they talk about preparing their students not for uh, not for business, but for the business of living. And then if you have that preparation, you're much better prepared for a wide variety of opportunities. That's the thing. We, I call I call what we're living in the Gretzky economy. It's not enough to skate where the puck is going. You have to be able to where uh, it's not enough to skate to where the puck is. You have to know where it's going. You have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. And what this broader education does is it equips you with a, a set of broad flexible skills that can be applied in a number of different contexts. So that's a, that's kind of the, the workforce development theory of, of my, my thought on this. Indeed, indeed, Brent, as, as you and I have discussed in the past, our program, the civics education program that we launched uh, about five, six years ago now down in South Florida, um, kind of takes this approach, civics, ethics, economics, and literature uh, as at least an introduction to, you know, kind of a, a great books model or a, you know, a scaled down but sort of liberal arts style of education. And one of the things we learned from our, our students was, and many of them have shared with us, Brent, the fact that by coming in and spending time with them and doing, you know, a deep dive into some of these classic works, um, that for the first time in their lives, they felt valued or valuable. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that harkens back to 
a lot of uh, what you mentioned there from the outset that there are a lot of principles, you know, kind of the intangibles that that just can't be, you know, kind of picked up in trade school or in a carpentry shop class, but that there's something of of essential value uh, to these great books, which have, you know, and contain these great ideas. Could you kind of share with us maybe um, if you had to sort of put together a, a short course of some of the great books that uh, you would love to see in a program, what would kind of a, you know, maybe a scaled down version of yeah. a good liberal arts program look like? I mean, there's so yeah. many classics to choose from, but yeah. just uh, curious there. Uh, well, I, before I before I go there, uh, I mean, I just I, I agree completely with this idea that one of and it goes back to what I talked about at the beginning. You know, if you're a person who suffered a lot of social alienation for whatever reason, something you did, something that was done to you, um, that lack of appreciation for the value of the human person usually begins on the inside of people not on the outside you know it's like i i don't treat people well because i don't really believe that i'm worth treating them well and i think what the humanities does is begin to open up a kind of a, a self-reflective conversation about what it means to be human um and uh and what and and why we <clears throat> have concepts like human rights uh and the dignity of the human person so sort of entering into that world at any level when you are in prison, I think if you haven't had exposure to it before, can be a very, that in itself can be a very life-changing experience. And I've talked to men uh, who have uh, had that experience of encountering uh, uh, this idea of, you know, the, the value of the human person for the first time through these kinds of prison education um, uh, courses. Now, in terms of what I would recommend, my go-to uh, in all of this is always Adam Smith, uh, the great uh, the great economist, um, and uh, he's chiefly known for the Wealth of Nations and you know the founder of market economics. He's got another book. Uh, not as well known, but the one that he was revising and working on right up until he died <clears throat> called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And what that book does is provides, lays out a theory of human development that takes a very high view of the human person uh, and describes how we come to encounter uh, ideas of morality and of mutuality in society um, without any appeal to the divine or God or or anything like that. But, I mean, this is a an, a, an 18th century thinker whose, um, whose theory of human development is as fresh today as it was um, three centuries ago. So um, that's the kind of thing that I think it can be so life-changing and um, and uh, really transformative for uh, people. But you can encounter these ideas. These are these are kind of eternal ideas. They show up in so many different uh, the works of so many uh, different writers, different thinkers. Um, and our our approach should be let's find out what people are actually interested in, you know, and then encourage them to pursue that because that's the beginning of their transformation. 
It absolutely is, Brent. No, and and you're right. I mean, just um, being part of a program that presents these, you know, perennial ideas in in ways that are, I wouldn't say easily understandable, but um, you know, we we begin to help guys kind of yeah. make their way through the process it, of. It, it's um, it's not easy to understand. Tech- that, and that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. That's yeah. the point. It's not yeah. easy to understand. You have to work at it. And yes. as you work at it, you develop a muscle that helps you want to know more, right? And and the labor is so important, uh, the mental labor, in part because uh, if you're in prison, you've got a lot of time to think, you know? And if you can get people thinking about something uh, that is more or less eternal in its nature rather than, you know, sort of what's happening to me right now. Uh, it provides an anchor um, for for people to begin to redevelop and rediscover themselves, um, which is um, which is, again, I just think you can't emphasize this enough for people in prison. They've many of them have never had an opportunity um, to discover this. It is interesting, you know, we live on the outside, we live in the age of the sound bites, but uh, it's quite the opposite, right? They have the time literally to to pour through, you know, Plato's Republic and to really wrestle with these great ideas. Yeah. And uh, hey, uh, amazing. One, one guy I know who was in prison, you know, he, he, he had a long sentence. He really got the attention of law enforcement for something that he did and they put him away for a long time. He was a young man. Uh, and he, uh, he talks about, he, t- he told me about, you know, for the first mm, year to 18 months, I would sit in my cell and I would rewind my life up to the point of being arrested and ask the question, how could I have done it? How could I have committed that crime differently? So I wouldn't have gotten caught. And it was only after that 18 months that he began to ask the question of how did I get here to begin with? And that is, that's the transformative moment is uh, people beginning to ask deeper questions about their lives. Um, And then everything gets easier after that. Um, You know, it gets uh, the, the, once you're open to that exploration, I, I think things get a lot easier. You start looking for the resources and for the relationships that can help you answer those questions. You think the um, sort of the mystique that is um, contained, if you will, within these these great works is that it causes men and women with, with significant sentences to on their own accord kind of go through what we now call in kind of modern psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy. In other words, yeah. CBT is so common, right? It's such a part of Reentry programs and evidence-based programs, but what do you think's going on, Brent? I mean, these these are some significant works and written by authors hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they were certainly onto something. Yeah, yeah. Well, human nature doesn't really change very much, uh, and the central questions that those authors are at were at uh, were asking uh, 500, 1,000, 1,500 years ago are still relevant to us. Shakespeare is still relevant to us because he's talking about uh, human nature um, and wrestling with the the same questions that we all wrestle with um, because we're all mortal um, and we all uh, have to grapple with uh, eternal things um, 
in our lives and the meaning uh, of our lives. So I agree with you completely. I, you know, I think that um, it is a kind of CBT. Uh, it's a philosophical CBT. Um, CBT, uh, strictly speaking, is about helping people to identify their triggers and unwind those triggers so they're not so easily, um, uh, you know, put back or find themselves back in situations where they're likely to commit crimes. You know, this is a supplement to that um, because it it sort of uh, begins to educate you on why you shouldn't uh, be committing crime. Absolutely. Um, Brent, on kind of the political and even policy front, you mentioned at one point in your article um, that uh, back in the mid 90s, when the whole, you know, tough on crime, you know, mantra was being put out there and uh, President Clinton had cut off Pell Grants in terms of, you know, providing educational funding for, um, you know, inmates and, and this kind of get tough policy was was kind of all the rage back then. And, and you note, you note in your article that there's a shift, uh, maybe away from a more punitive approach uh, with the restoration of some you know, Pell Grants uh, under the Obama and Trump administrations. You know, in D.C. in the last few years, are you seeing a little bit of a shift now in terms of, you know, from a political or policy perspective that we might be maybe moving the needle in the right direction back to back to education? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think so. I, I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, again, we're talking about um, we're talking about pretty ingrained human behavior um, here, not just among people who commit crimes, but among uh, voters who, uh, you know, for good reason, value public order and safety. Uh, and um, and it, it, I'm I'm somewhat concerned. Uh, actually about um, sort of a polarization reasserting itself on uh, criminal justice reform. I'm hoping we can avoid that. Uh, you know, we've had 20 years of kind of bipartisan support, beginning with um, President Bush and continuing up to the present with President Biden, uh, the, you know, of Congresses and presidents who um, have come together uh, to work on this problem of what what are we going to do with the 1.8 million people we have behind bars? How do we get here? What should we be doing differently? There's been a you know kind of a rough and ready consensus that we should be trying uh, alternatives. Um, one of the challenges at the moment is that we are experiencing a spike in uh, crime and violent crime in many of our urban centers, and so I, I my immediate concern right now is that uh, we will reach for the tried and true um, comfort policy, as it were, for dealing with crime, which is uh, get tough. Uh, and um, and uh, I, not that I, I don't, I, I believe that people who commit crime should, you know, be arrested and and tried and convicted and, and should pay a, a penalty for their crime. But I do think that as a society, we tend to go to that too quickly uh, and that we need different approaches depending on what the situation is uh, that we're dealing with. Sometimes it's a mental health issue, sometimes it's a substance abuse problem, sometimes it's a homelessness problem um, that is winding people up in prison and, uh, you know, all we've got is the hammer, so everything looks like a nail. 
and I would like to see a more kind of diversified approach to how we deal with public order um, uh, challenges. Obviously, violent crime is a different matter. We have to we have to find people who commit violent crime, put them away to protect others. But we're that's not everybody in prison uh, uh, that winds up in prison. Absolutely, and, and I think that. Um you know, as we you talk about a narrative shift, right? You know, um, a more robust understanding of education, you know, head and heart, you know, praxis and theory, the liberal and the practical arts moving away from a more, you know, sort of you know, very rigid uh, kind of crime and punishment mentality to, you know, rehabilitation and training and preparation for reentry. I think, um, and, and you make this point, that's where the private sector really can be a great asset, right? And I know that uh, at AEI, you guys do a great job kind of collaborating with and partnering up with and supporting other private organizations that are trying to help uh, inmates, uh, both behind bars, but also on the reentry side, get, uh, get a good education. Can you, can you, Brent, share with us just a little bit about maybe some of the private initiatives you know about uh, that are doing some great work as well? Yeah, and I mentioned, the, I mentioned a number of them in the article, um, but um, uh, the, the Prison Scholars Fund uh, is a small nonprofit on the West Coast that is uh, that funds um, undergraduate education for people who are in prison, uh, and I, I think is a you know a, uh, it's uh, founded and run by uh, a, a somebody who had been in prison who got his undergraduate degree uh, from uh, Penn State while he was behind bars. So that's a very interesting program. Uh, the Bard Prison Initiative, um, there's a fascinating four-part documentary uh, available on Netflix that you can kind of see this. Um, it's, a, it's a liberal arts education uh, behind bars and you can, you can kind of watch uh, this, trans the, this transformational process going on in the lives of the men and women who are in prison. That's been around since, um, I think it was 1999. Um, there's uh, a variety of, under, of undergraduate programs that are expanding into prisons. Um, Goucher College in Maryland has one. Georgetown uh, University, which has been working in the DC system for many years, is now expanding into the Maryland system. So, uh, I think there's a there there's a lot of interest uh, in this and uh, desire to um, see people um, thrive and and flourish uh, even if they have to be behind bars uh, that doesn't prevent people from flourishing so um, yes there's a, there's a lot going on and I, I I find it a fascinating topic and I'm sure that your um, your viewers would enjoy learning more about it too. Absolutely, Brent. Well, as you say there, as your article closes out, you know, while people must pay penalties for criminal activity, including spending time in prison when necessary, we can also find ways of using education to redeem both the time and the person behind bars. And, and I think that really kind of sums up quite well um, what I think is and what I we both think is uh, the, 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 the best, most humane, most human response to embracing and allowing, um, you know, all of these returning citizens, right, to come back to our communities. Yeah, um, I, if I could just comment on that, because I think it's so important, uh, you know, when we do these things, 
uh, and assist people uh, who are in prison in this way, we aren't just affirming their humanity, we're, we're affirming our own. We are connected to people behind bars. They, they are coming home, almost all of them come home. Um, they are our family members, they are our friends, they are going to be in our communities, they are part of us. And so when we invest in these things, we're really investing in our own futures. Uh, and so I, I just hope that people um, can kind of shift their orientation from uh, a, a really punitive outlook to something that is realistic, that we need realism, but we also need compassion. Brett, I think that's really a great point and one to just uh, kind of end today's podcast on, but you're right. It is, you know, it's it's all of us in this together and really seeing ourselves uh, in those returning citizens as they come back to our our communities. Brent Oral, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Brent, thank you so much again for your time today and for the great work you're doing at AEI on behalf of uh, our inmates across the country. Brent, thanks so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me.